thing about a good Irish bar is, you know, you get your Fridays and Saturday nights in the summer and it's bunged, right? Yeah. But my favourite time of year to be in an Irish bar is autumn, winter, yeah. right? And me and my, my fiancé there over, uh, over Christmas, you know, going in the bar and having a pint and sitting by the fire and the wind's howling outside and you have a walk back to the cottage. It's that sort of, it's a sense of place yeah. rather, rather than, and it's a feeling rather yeah. than a, we're playing you two, we're an Irish bar. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly. I'm Owen Walsh, and this is the Brussels Beer City podcast, The Diaspora Season. If you haven't listened to the trailer for the new season or read the recent blog post over at beercity.brussels, then you won't know that this season of the Brussels Beer City podcast is taking a slightly different direction than the one that wrapped up way, way back in November 2020. This time around, it's all about Brussels diaspora drinking dens. And given my own immigrant background, I moved from Ireland to Brussels all the way back in 2009, I don't think I'd be able to show my face back home if I didn't start the season by looking at a global phenomenon that's had an ever-present footprint in Brussels basically since the very beginning of the trend 40 years ago. I am, of course, talking about Irish pubs, Ireland's unofficial embassies. It's the early evening in Brussels, and I find myself sitting at a high table in the Wild Geese pub in the European Quarter, talking to Aidan Connolly. Yep, my name is Aidan Connolly. I am the director of uh, the Office of the Northern Ireland Executive in Brussels. I've been here for a year, uh, officially, um, but I've been coming to Brussels for about 20 years. Aidan is about to explain to me what makes for a good Irish pub. I call myself a bit of a wee kind of sewer of, of Irish pubs, right? Okay. I, I started okay. I started travelling in the early nineties. Yeah. So I have seen a lot of a, a lot of Irish bars, and for me, there's three things that make a good Irish bar for okay. me. One is a good pint, right? We're sitting in the Wild Geese. It's not your usual sort of Irish bar. It's one of the more lower profile ones yeah. in the city. I mean. uh, and you've got you know you've got Marvin Gaye in the background know, singing yeah. and. Uh, but by God, do they do a good pint? <laughs> and, and the pints here are really good too. And it doesn't have to be every night. But if they have a good session once in a while. And I mean not, here's five people who play together. I mean a session that you could almost be up at um, the best session on this earth. Is in a wee pub in uh, Bunbeg called Hootie Bugs. Okay. And to me, a good session is one that it's not five people who are paid to do it. It is starts with two or three people playing a tune, and then you can have twenty or thirty people, and the music never stops because when, when it finishes one tune, someone else will start it, and it just it, yeah. so so that's important. The music is important, but it doesn't have to be every night. The third thing's a bit of food. If you get up up in Donegal, Bumbeg and Derry Beg, you know, so we're all Gilgores at home, we're all Irish speakers. And uh, anywhere where you get good seafood chowder up there and it's oh it's great. And then I suppose the the last thing for me is if there is a bit of Irish spoken at it. You're not going to get that, but by God, you know, I can remember You don't get that everywhere, but there's I mean Well, I I, I remember sitting in a pub in an Irish pub in Copenhagen 
and uh, I was uh, on the phone to my dad, and I only speak Irish to my dad, okay. I, only, I only ever had. I, and I got off the phone and put the phone down, these two fellas came up, walk, walking up to me, I was like, What's going on here? Yeah, hold on here. Well, tussle or chenilig? IV. Right, okay, and, and that was it. And that was it. That was the it. The night was set. The night was set, and you, you, it's, um, but it's, it's great to be able to take a wee bit of where you're from, and you know, you're in it. If you can play a tune, you're never lost, my dad always says. Now, talking about the centrality of the pub to Irish social life, and by extension a pint as well, can often dip into cliché, but that doesn't make it any less true. In fact, it might even be more true for Ireland's emigrants. In Brussels, though it may not hold the global allure it once did, the Irish pub remains a fixture of the Irish emigrant experience. Everyone's got their favourite pub and their pub stories, and that includes the Irish ambassador. My name is Kevin Conmay. I'm the Irish ambassador to Belgium and for the liaison office to NATO. A lesser known fact about the Irish ambassador to Belgium, I served uh, pints and bar in bars in the Cuckullen Lounge Bar in Patrick's Well for three or four summers. One of the first lessons I learned was beware of men who know their Guinness and you as a rookie barman trying to pull a proper pint and them avoiding you when they wanted to order a pint. <laughs> so you knew you'd, you knew you'd made the grade as a, a, a young barman when they no longer avoided you when they wanted a pint of Guinness. <laughs> and that was back in the day when the equipment wasn't quite as regulated and easy as it is now, although there's still, in, still big issues around pulling pints properly. But uh, so yeah, that was one of the first was, and I mean, I didn't drink Guinness until I was well into my 20s, so I had no idea what I was doing when I was was pulling the pints. At several decades distance, Ambassador Conmey can still conjure up old memories of buying sweets with his pocket money from the little corner counter at Lena Chalk's bar in nearby Adair. I suppose um, when I first uh, arrived in Limerick as a 10 year old from Chicago, Lena's was a real old-style corner bar uh, with a bit of a shop and a, uh, and a, a small counter. Um, you know, a cement floor probably had not been painted in 50 years. And Lena was this um, very, very old, very small, very frail woman. And she ran it for years after that when I first encountered it. And you could get your uh, Cadbury's chocolate bar for four pence. Mm and your curly whirly for three, and your packet of Tato crisps for two cents. So it was a big place for children, as well as for the odd character standing there drinking a solitary pint. That these memories of childhood pubs remain so vivid for Conmey makes clear the mark they left on an impressionable young Irish-American. And just like Aidan Connolly, who himself worked behind the bar of his local GA clubhouse when he was younger, the value of the pub as an intergenerational community focal point has stuck with Conmey through his diplomatic postings in the US, the UK, and now in his time in Brussels. There's something else that has stuck with him too, a secret or not so secret, given Irish people hardly ever stop going on about it, ingredient that Irish pubs have that has helped propel them to international ubiquity. Is, I suppose, you, know, you tend to still get that sense of Irish welcome um, and again, we can be very self-congratulatory about it, but it is actually true. Irish people have a knack of, of being able to um, make people feel relaxed and engaged. Uh, and I'm constantly uh, surprised. I mean, the diplomatic community here in, in Brussels is huge, mm. given you have the EU, the bilateral, NATO, 
etc. Uh, and the numbers of foreign diplomats who tell me, yes, I was in Ireland when I was studying or when I was, was traveling around in my university years. And, it, you know, one of the most memorable experiences of my life. And quite often it entails uh, stories about pubs in Dingle or in the west of Ireland and uh, meeting old men who told them wild stories, etc. So it is... Um, it is part of what people take away from visits to Ireland and Irish engagement and finding those spaces around the world are, are really important ways of keeping that link to Ireland and, and Ireland's offering alive for other people. That knack, the ambassador says, that Irish people have of putting on a good welcome for somebody, that's what has kept Brussels in Irish pubs since the first one opened nearly 35 years ago. Donegal man Brian O'Donnell, who a Flemish newspaper described as a typical Ur-Irishman, opened the James Joyce near the European Commission's offices in May 1989. He joined a trend that had started in Liverpool five years previously. English writers Jessica Boke and Ray Bailey, in their book 28th Century Pub, definite recommend, date the first custom-built, 100% genuine fake Irish pub, in England at least, to the opening of Flanagan's Apple in 1984. Irish pubs then began opening in Paris and Berlin throughout the late 1980s, and soon after opening in Brussels, the Joyce had company. In early 1990, Kitty O'Shea's launched in the shadow of the European Commission's headquarters, and throughout the 90s, more pubs followed. For over a century, Brussels had been a stronghold of English beer, but soon, ads for Guinness and Kilkenny were replacing Whitbread Pale Ale and Watney's Red Barrel on pub facades across town. In the EU quarter, pubs like the Queen Victoria, where British diplomats celebrated the UK's entry into the EEC in January 1973, were supplanted by the Joyce, Kitty O'Shea's, the Old Oak and O'Farrell's on Place de Luxembourg. A building on the burst plane that had once displayed a two-storey tall Bovril sign became a branch of the O'Reilly's pub chain. And on Place Flagé, a bar that had once advertised Bière Anglaise was rebranded as Devil Eras after Ireland's most consequential politician. Aidan Connolly, then a young student, experienced this Irish pub fever at first hand. I started travelling in the early 90s. Yeah. Went to the States and, you know, went to Denmark and Italy and all over Europe yeah. and, and different places. And it was just at that time, you know, just around the time of the Good Friday Agreement. And okay. You two were in the top of the charts <laughs> and everywhere, but everywhere in England, in Scotland, Wales, yeah. in Europe, they, they had a... Um, a they had a, a, an Irish bar, and I, I remember, you know, um, rocking up and doing a bit of studying at the University of Aarhus in, in Denmark okay. at the turn of the millennium. Yeah, not on the tourist trail. Like no, no, no. Just, mean. just, just, just. I was going to do a bit of work and study, and yeah. uh, they had a great Irish bar there, you know, and uh, a pint would have cost you. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I was lucky. I came home with both kidneys. Put it like that. As Boke and Bailey wrote in 20th Century Pub, what these new Irish pubs offered for non-Irish drinkers, for locals, was a combination of familiarity and foreignness. Somewhere comfortable and pub-like, but different, different enough at least, from their vernacular cafe culture. 
This was no different in Brussels than in Birmingham or Berlin or the Danish bars that were haunted by a student, Aidan Connolly. I think that's really fascinating that there's yeah. something about this export which just really works in loads of settings internationally. The voice you hear there is Naomi O'Leary, somebody with her own fair share of stories from Irish pubs as diverse as places like Italy, Panama and the UK. I'm Naomi O'Leary, I'm a journalist, I'm a podcaster as well, I have a podcast called the Irish Passport Podcast and I work for the Irish Times as their Europe correspondent. My family, my dad's family from Kerry would be publicans so they own a number of kind of well-storied establishments in Killarney, the Laurels, the Flesk, okay. place that's no longer with us called Klondike. Um, so my dad would have grown up around that, gone down there for the summers and so on, and that was very much passed down to me. So It's not just because of Naomi's family background in the pub trade that she has such a good handle on the concept and the evolution and the history of the Irish pub abroad. In 2018, as part of a Paddy's Day special, she undertook an in-depth and really, really interesting investigation into what makes the Irish pub tick. What I find fascinating about it, which I think is an overwhelmingly positive thing, is just like, why does it work in so many places? I know that feeling. I was in Estonia and I was like, okay, here in Tallinn, there's this pub called the Dubliner. Why is that? And, you know, when I was talking to um, a friend of mine from Ukraine and, you know, they... They were doing a trad session in an Irish pub like the week before the invasion happened. Yeah. They did this whole interview about it. And that's, it's, it's fascinating to me how far this goes and how many, many people around the world want to positively engage well, with it. it. Like even in, in Japan, I did, um, for the podcast as well, we did yeah. a story about Ireland and Japan. And I, the biggest trad session I've ever attended was in Tokyo. But Naomi's own experiences and the experiences she heard while, while making that podcast show that the Irish pub at its best is a sort of malleable concept that bends and shapes itself to fit the needs of not just the local Irish population, but the locals who are going to be their main customers anyway. Having said that, you know, they also, you know, they have their own reality separate mm. from their link to Ireland. They, they become their own thing because more often than not, the patrons will majority be locals yeah. and they find something in the Irish pub format that works for them and they make it their own. Kitty O'Shea's, where Naomi and I met for a drink and where I hadn't actually consciously at least been in the 14 years of living in Brussels, is a prime example of the adoption effect that she's talking about. This particular place that we're in, Kitty O'Shea's, I would say is the most famous Irish pub in like the media circles of yeah. Brussels. Like it's usually just referred to as Kitties yeah. and it's a staple. I mean, it would be a kind of ritual that after the European councils, when the leaders meet and everything ends up really, really late at night, then everybody retires to Kitties and you would just say Kitties like it's, like it's known by the shorthand. Yeah. So because where it is physically is literally beside the European Commission, like we can actually see it out the window. I was just going to say, for anybody who doesn't know the geography <laughs> of Brussels, you can literally, well, if you crane your neck, you can probably see the you 13th floor where all the offices are. wave at Ursula von der Leyen, yeah. And the, the place where the, the national leaders meet when they come is just across the road. So yeah. it's, it's extremely close by, so it's, it's a staple. It's not just journalists like Naomi or commission officials from across the road who've availed of a pint of kitties. Famously, Bob Geldof once dragged European Commission President José Manuel Barroso there for a drink, and when he was a Brussels correspondent many years ago, Boris Johnson was known to sneak in for a beer in between filing his tendentious dispatches. This international crowd, 
has always been a lucrative pool from which Brussels Irish pubs could draw customers, alongside Belgians who were lured by the reputation for the crack. Sorry, not sorry. An Irish people in search of a good pint and a televised match at the weekend. The pubs bend to the needs of their customers, like the British drinkers looking for somewhere to host Brexit debates, wakes and parties, or De Valera's at Place Flaget, where the local supporters club of an Italian football team had long sequestered a corner as their ersatz clubhouse to watch Sunday afternoon Serie A matches. But the Irish pub abroad will always have its closest connection to the local Irish diaspora. I mean, Irish pubs have served as, the, like I say, unofficial embassies, employment offices, you know, a place to see the matches, to yeah. link into the other Irish people, the local community. Um, they're often, they're multifaceted as yeah. catering, uh, you know, outlets. They usually have some link to music. They often have events on. So they, it really depends on the character of the pub, but they can be very rich in terms of what they offer as a community. Um, having said that, you know, they also... Naomi has herself, as I'm sure many people Irish listening do too, plenty of stories about Irish pubs and the services they can provide to an Irish person abroad. I remember one time my, my sister visited me when I lived in London and somehow she got lost. I don't remember how, but she got lost. She didn't have, you know, her phone ran out of battery. She was wandering around. And she, she came across an Irish pub and it was literally like finding an oasis in the desert. She went in, the man, you know, the man, the owner, he was elderly, he turned out to be from Kerry. He was really kindly, you know, they, they put, they got her a lemonade, sat her down, she used the phone, she called me. The whole pub got involved with the fact that this sort of like green Irish girl from, from Dublin was over to visit her sister yeah. and gotten lost and they looked after her, you know. It can definitely work yeah. as, a, as a refuge. As a refuge. But the sight of a Guinness sign above the door of a pub on an unfamiliar street in a strange city can have, what you might say, unexpected effects on even the least nationalist of Irish people. It's wherever you go, you know. So, like, whenever I was in Aarhus or Odense in, in, in uh, Denmark or whenever I was in, you know, Syracuse in upstate New York, or it doesn't matter where you go, there's a animal attraction or a magnetism, you know, and you will find people who you'd expect to be more Irish when they go away, fight against it, and you have people who you expect to be uh, not Irish at all when they go away, suddenly become, you know, shillelagh-waving crazy men. The thing about Brussels shillelagh-waving crazy men is that they're a little bit different in makeup compared to their compatriots in London and other cities with long-established Irish communities, as Ambassador Conmey explains. The Irish communities in the United States and the UK are centuries old, um, really. And while there are some Irish links to the Middle Ages and, and early years of uh, European history pre the existence of the, of the state of Belgium, uh, you know, Irish emigration to Belgium is very much since 1973 when we joined the EEC. Um, and it's a different type of, of immigration. It's very much uh, professional people coming to do jobs, possibly quite often be people with uh, already coming here with language skills. Um, and so it doesn't have the same mix of um, Irish citizens looking for perhaps greater levels of support and assistance from the embassy and the network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it is a different, different character to it that, than I've experienced in my postings in the United States and in uh, in London.
That's not to say there aren't Irish people who've settled into Brussels for the long term, bought a house or started a family. The thing is, a significant number are only ever going to be in the city for a couple of years, on a time-limited diplomatic posting, for example, or undertaking early career internships before moving back to Dublin. This constant churn in people means that there isn't always the time to make a deep connection with the place, which serves only to accentuate really the role of the Irish pub as a rallying point for the community that is here. As a relatively new arrival in the city and already more than a third way through his term, Aidan Connolly knows this side of Brussels pretty well at this point, and he also knows how the Irish pub can fill a gap in this transient lifestyle. It's almost like a sense of continuity, mm. you know? Because in the diplomatic life, we will go to, you, I could be out every night of the week, right? And I can drink nice wine and eat canapes and, and all that sort of thing, but there's a difference if you actually want to go out and enjoy yourself. Yeah. For Connolly and others like him, Brussels Irish pubs can be the place to watch the rugby or the GAA, somewhere you've a good chance of finding a fellow Irish speaker for a conversation, or as the venue to trade a suitcase full of potato bread you've smuggled back into Brussels from home. And, as Ambassador Connolly said already, it's a place where you're, as likely as not, going to get a welcome that reminds you of home if only just for a little while. I say people are looking for the relax, the relaxness that comes with an Irish pub. It's that sense of a welcome that has helped keep Neil Sullivan in business. After a long career in the pub trade, spanning 30 years in stints in America, the Netherlands and Germany, Sullivan took over the Wild Geese a decade ago. And more than in any other country he's worked in, he says, the Irish welcome is uniquely suited to lending the Irish pub a competitive advantage in Brussels. Customer service in Belgium can be not great sometimes, you know. There is great places, but uh, often it's not great. And that's why it's a great advantage for us here because we go out of our way to be nice and friendly and look after people. And because the the typical Belgian service can be a little bit uh, distant, distant exactly, or some people can can find it unfriendly, it's a great bonus for us. It's a great bonus for us to be friendly, you know. It's a competitive edge, that welcome, that openness, that relaxedness, that's become increasingly important for Brussels' Irish bars, as the city's hospitality sector has experienced significant disruption in recent years. Drinkers' expectations of the pub are changing too, and it looks as if the fever for Irish pubs that gripped Europe two decades ago appears to have broken. Um, And I think also that high point has passed. I think a lot of people who opened Irish bars around the world in the heyday of the late 80s, early 90s, um, you know, a lot came and went. uh, And I think actually now... That's certainly true in Brussels. At its peak in the early 2000s, there were by some estimates 40 Irish pubs in Brussels. And that number has at least halved in the interim 20 years. The Old Oak is now a wellness centre. McSweeney's near Avenue Louise is an Argentinian steakhouse. O'Farrell's opposite the European Parliament has been an ex-key for at least a decade now. De Valera's closed for several years and then reopened, and its stablemate, the Michael Collins, was converted into a Brussels beer project bar, albeit 
one that did serve a specially brewed nitro stout as a mark of respect to its predecessor. This isn't a trend, as the ambassador said, that's limited to Brussels, but there are particularities to Belgium that make it a difficult place to run a hospitality business in particular. Um, unfortunately, Belgium is extremely difficult. The most difficult I've ever encountered. Uh, yeah. Labour costs in Belgium are extremely high. Yeah. You know, the highest anywhere I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, they still have the 13th month and they have the holiday pay, all this kind of stuff, which is, it's, it's, it's a great place to be employed. Yeah, but more difficult to be an employer. More difficult to be an employer. <laughs> well, more difficult to, to make it happen, if, if you know what I mean. Just particularly in Belgium. The, the margin is very, very small. Yeah. You know, you really have to be very, very good. The idea of making a lot of money with an Irish pub in Belgium is no way, no way, it's not happening. Which is Alongside the structural issues that Neil Sullivan talks about there, there have been external factors too that have made things more complicated for him and for his colleagues in recent years. There's the global financial crisis, which cut aside through expense account fuel Thursday night parties. Then the COVID-19 pandemic and the cost of living crisis more recently have not made things any easier. And Sullivan has seen his energy prices, for example, rise exponentially and his suppliers hike their prices. Other things too, like the introduction of the smoking ban, which came in Belgium in 2007, forced a fundamental rethink, Sullivan says, of the Irish pub concept in general. The concept is good. The concept has always been good and, and it has been reinvented through the years. As I say, uh, the idea of going into an old dingy pub where they might be showing the racing and everyone's smoking and women aren't, aren't really accepted and stuff like that, that has all changed dramatically. So, and, if, and people's attitude changed. People's, um, what they were looking for changed. They were looking for somewhere where they could go and relax. Yeah, yeah. They still wanted the Irish welcome. You know, they still wanted the friendliness and the stuff like that. And, and uh, the internationality of the whole thing, being able to speak English, particularly in, in Brussels, was a big advantage. And as a consequence, everything had to change. Just as in Ireland, uh, food was becoming more important for the Irish pub too in Brussels. And so when Sullivan took over the Wild Geese, he says he made sure that the pub's offering was substantial. So I came down and decided that we'd turn this place into more like a, a pub, the way most of the pubs are in Ireland these days, yeah. like a kind of a gastro pub where you do a bit of food and everything like that. And that's where we are now, I suppose. The constant churn of people in Brussels EU bubble, Irish and international alike, means that even if the current population tires of the city's Irish pubs, there'll be another cohort along in a minute. And it also helps that in recent years, the attitude of some Irish people to, let's be honest, what is one of our most famous exports, has mellowed too. There was a period, um, and I'm, I'm a diplomat long enough to have lived through many of these periods, but there was a period where uh, the Irish bar kind of took over the world and then there was a, a counter-revolution saying this was not the kind of culture that Ireland wants to be known for. But I think that's levelled out now and I think what we see is that there are significant, important uh, cultural spaces and businesses. I mean, these are Irish people in the main or partnering with, with local uh, local people uh, to run businesses, create employment, and provide, as you say, cultural space. Now, there are still people out there who hold the views on Irish pubs that Ambassador Conmey alluded to there. The ones that might complain about cheesiness or inauthenticity. But there are others too, like Naomi O'Leary, for example, who takes a more sympathetic approach to what Boke and Bailey in their book on British pubs called the authentically inauthentic Irish pub experience. 
lot of sort of policing of the authenticity of Irish pubs that goes mm. on among Irish people. And <laughs> I think that it's genuine. I just don't see anything positive in it. I see it as part of a broader tendency to police Irishness okay. that I just, do, I just don't see where the positive is in that at yeah. all. Um, so and people I don't are saying that this place is a real Irish pub and, and this place is not, not a real like, Irish pub. Is one setting, sort of setting themselves up as more Irish than somebody else. I'm like, who, like who, who has the right to judge the Irishness of anybody else? Mm. And this is something that there, it's, there's a multiplicity of different Irish yeah. identities. Um, and they exist in different places, different country, cultures, and they, they evolve over time. Yeah. And so I, I would just take an inclusive attitude to it. and. It's just what people want to make of it. There's no doubting that the past couple of years have been hard for bars in Brussels and the city's Irish pubs have not escaped unscathed. Now, while there has been a culling of their numbers, for sure, Neil Sullivan remains bullish on their future prospects. It's been an interesting few years, but, but the same everywhere, no? the same everywhere you go. Will there be place for it in Belgium? Oh yeah, always, always, I would think so. On, uh, Unless something dramatically changes with, with Belgium service, but I don't see that really happening ever. So, um, oh yeah, no, the Irish pub thing will, will continue. And I think al- so. There's always going to be a, a new generation. And maybe Neil is onto something because even now there's a new Irish pub under construction in central Brussels claiming as it does to be the biggest and best Irish pub in Brussels and with true atmosphere. Now, it looks as if Brussels' Irish pubs aren't going anywhere because there will always be people looking for somewhere to watch the Six Nations in the spring or musicians looking for a session to join or Gwailgors in search of other Irish speakers. There'll always be locals, foreign residents alike, keen to seek out a bit of the famed warm welcome and perhaps a fond reminder of a long-ago visit to Ireland. And if all else fails, there'll be always a new batch of Irish people arriving into Brussels seeking a familiar waypoint in a hostile city. And if that isn't enough, back at the Wild Geese, as a barman brings two creamy pints out on a tray, Aidan Connolly has one more final reason why the Irish pub isn't abandoning Brussels anytime soon. Irish boys miss two things, they miss their mommy and they miss the pub. I'm Owen Walsh, and this has been the Brussels Beer City Podcast. A huge thanks to all of my guests this week, and to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you listen on, and be sure to check out the article that accompanies this podcast episode at beercity.brussels. Until next time, take care. And it's very quick. I'm going to grab another one, you want? I'm happy to pay for this, don't worry.